Support comes from USC Online, providing exceptional online graduate programs, certificates, and upskilling for current and aspiring professionals. Explore your graduate options today with the University of Southern California at online.usc.edu. I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, acclaimed British writer Robert McFarlane talks about his kinship with the natural world and marvels at how language reflects its beauty. I'm fascinated by where matter meets metaphor. The underworld is not just where we gain our raw materials from, where natural disasters erupt from. It's this unbiddable, scarcely known, deep realm that we walk on every day. We walk on the crust. Our feet are the things that keep us in contact with the earth. And later, inspired by the tale of Gilgamesh, McFarlane talks about his love of music and his collaboration with singer-songwriter Johnny Flynn. You know, no one would ever want to watch a writer write. It's paint drying, it's grass growing, but musicians are magicians weaving golden thread that they pluck from the air. From mountains to the underworld to the magic of music, we go inside the mind of one of the great living nature writers, Robert McFarlane. That's coming up on Life Examined. Robert McFarlane grew up loving mountains. You could even say they were in his DNA. His father was a mountaineer, and his grandfather oversaw some of the early expeditions and the first summit of Mount Everest in the 1950s. McFarlane's own passion for the extremes of the mountains and nature fostered yet another interest, writing. And in his first book called Mountains of the Mind, published when he was only 25, McFarlane explores why he fell in love with mountains and seeks answers as to why so many are willing to die for their love of reaching the summit. McFarlane's interest in looking upwards may well have inspired his latest book, Underlands, A Deep Time Journey. While the upper world is a place of the gods and awe, the subterranean world is an unseen place, a territory for burial and hiding. For McFarlane, the underworld is also a place where matter meets metaphor. Negative words like down, dark, or depressed are deeply ingrained in our language and mythology. Robert McFarlane joins me now to talk about his exploration and interest in what lies beneath our feet. He's a fellow at Emmanuel College at Cambridge University in the UK, and he's written numerous other books on nature and landscape, including The Old Ways and Landmarks. Well, Robert McFarlane, I'm so happy to have you on finally here to Life Examined. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Lovely, lovely to be here. I'm speaking from from the uh, 99 million year old chalk of South Cambridge today. Oh, perfect. Well, we're happy to hear your voice in Southern California. <laughs> and uh, there's so much I, I want to talk to you about. I'm just so happy to have you on the program. Um, but uh, you've recently been writing about this, the kind of the amazing exploration and the larger metaphors of the underworld. And I want to get to that too, and so many other things. But but in many ways, you started your career looking at what's, uh, what are some of the highest points in the hmm. world, which are mountains. And yeah. as a young man, you were fascinated by them. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, about that kind of instinctual love you had for the mountains growing up. Yeah, well, they, they, they have my heart, the mountains, and they, they always will. I'm not a young man anymore, but I, I'm not quite an older person yet. But I, I can tell that, you know, that, that I'll, I'll always lift my eyes to the hills, um, which makes it doubly strange that I've, I live in one of the flattest parts of the world in the Fens in Cambridge. But um, yeah, they, they, they went deep, uh, bo- you know, bone deep from from an early age. And my my grandfather was a was a mountaineer. He was a, a diplomat and a mountaineer. And he oversaw and helped with the organization of the Everest expeditions in the early 50s, one of which obviously um, reach, was the first to reach the summit of Everest. He, he loved the Alps. His, his parents died when he was young. His father was committed to a sanatorium in the Alps because he had tuberculosis. My grandfather grew up in the mountains and, uh, and, and he was the person you know, who would tell me the, the stories and, and I would look with awe at these witchy, tools he had these skis that were wooden skis that were you know taller than he was these crampons these axes and they were the they were the magician's art they were the magician's ones that levitated him and in the process of, of you loving mountains you began to write about them some of your, your earliest writing and and i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you were getting at for example you talked about 
the changing relationship that humans had with the mountains that maybe began some 300 years ago. What, what, what's that all about? Yeah, well, yeah, so the first book I wrote, it, it's 20 years old next year, which does um, make me gasp a little bit. Uh, it's called Mountains of the Mind, and it, it, it came out in 2003, which was the 50th anniversary of the first ascent of Everest. And I just, I remember being, I was climbing in, in the sort of greater ranges. I was in Kyrgyzstan, um, big, dangerous, avalanche glacial territory. And I was leading a small group of three friends. Um, and, you know, I was, I was inadequate to those mountains by a long way. And they were, they were less experienced than I was. So I felt this terrible combination of responsibility and menace. And I remember one day when I was just, out of it with altitude sickness on this glacier called the Inilchek Glacier under this incredible 7,000 metre peak of pink marble called Khan Tengri, wandering up the glacier and finding a cemetery there, this little um, boulder, sort of an improvised mountaineer's cemetery, and just looking at the plaques with the names scratched on them of the people who died on, on those mountains around me. And I suddenly had this this kind of the, the, the view in from the outside to the to the to the religion that I was I was part of this devotion that was unquestionable to me you know of, of course you climb mountains why wouldn't you and I suddenly found it astonishing that I you know was risking my life and the lives of others uh doing doing what I loved but also I then began to realize because I was trained as a, a literary scholar and a cultural historian I also began to realize that this was anomalous historically within the broader western tradition so we basically we we didn't start climbing mountains for pleasure in in europe um until the late second half of the seventh of the 18th century and when you look at it like that and it becomes this young this sort of invention then it's even weirder <laughs> so i wanted to so you know solve that double puzzle why 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 had i fallen in love with it but why culturally uh, are we now at a place where you know everest has 300 people in a queue on the in the death zone every may weather window mm, yeah the, the, my sense is that more than 300 years ago mountains would have been kind of menacing something to avoid uh, that you may have to get over if you were forced to but Certainly there was this change where they became something, I, I think you've used the word, a, a secular religion or pilgrimage mm. or, or something mm. or the other that has really captured our imagination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, either either things to be feared or things to be revered, I guess. So there's clearly we, you know, we've long located our our gods and our deities, many religions have uh, in, in high places. And, uh, you know, the Bible tells us lift up thine eyes to the hills from thence will come thy salvation you know there's a there's a there's an awe and a reverence directed towards high ground it's a place precisely because it was a place that wasn't reached it was otherworldly and you know it, it, and it still is it's it's a the the upper world is another world when i look at george mallory and um sandy irvin and, and those early everest pioneers of the 1920s um they they were astronauts Right, they were they were going they were going where to to a realm which had never been reached before above eight thousand meters. They they were astonishing explorers, absolutely pushing the bounds of human durability and 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 possibility. So, it it's it's taken us a long time to kind of secularize and tame the mountains, uh, and largely we've you know we've done that. Um, though of course mountains can still remind us of their um, blazing indifference to our schemes. I wonder if you could just expand on, on what you mentioned earlier, which is just this kind of mythological or biblical notion of looking up towards something. And I think this will perhaps take us to <laughs> some of your later work, which is looking down. But, but we really have this notion of an up and a down and a good and a bad. It, we kind of polarize the two. Yeah, yeah, it's a metaphor we live by, to borrow that that amazing phrase. Um, uh, so we, yeah, it's one of the the simplest, and I think in 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 many, but not all cultures, uh, down is bad and up is up is good. I, you know, it's just, I paint with a broad brush here, but the sublime uh, is the lofty. Um, we excel, we 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 raise up, we rise up. That's what that word carries within it as a as an axis. To become depressed, to feel down, to be low, um, to be to be downtrodden—you know—all of these 
metaphors of descent are grained deep into our language as negatives. Uh, and the underworld, in many cultures, but not all, is uh, is is often a place of of the dead, of the shadow realm. The upper world is a place of of the gods. Uh, in the Norse uh, three tiered cosmos, uh, which is kind of joined by this this amazing world tree, which grows between the realms. The the mortal realm is the middle realm. The realm of the gods is the upper realm, the the, the canopy, if you like, of the world tree, and down in the roots is um is the monstrous is the is the realm of the dead in the underworld mm. well it's interesting that that your first book 20 years ago was looking up and and most recently <laughs> your your the most uh the most recent book you've put out is is looking down underworld and so maybe you can tell us about why you felt it was important to move in the other direction well yeah it's i mean there's a there's a there's a simple sort of gravitational logic i guess uh, looked at across 20 years nearly which is you know from high to low um i in in between those books i you know i wrote a book called the wild places about sort of valleys and forests and peaks and islands and then i read a book called the old ways which was about paths that we you know the paths that run through us as well as they run through places this metaphor of the the, the life as a path so so in a sense the the trodden paths are the beginning of the underworld, if you like, because they're they're harrowed a little down into into the land, hollowed by by feet and by time and and by wheels. So there were lots of things pointing me down, but actually there were real world events that 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 really confirmed that this was where, where I should look next. And in two thousand ten, uh, it still amazes me to look back at it. The, the, the world was rocked by what I what I call surfacing. So basically, where the underworld, which we normally keep out of sight and out of mind and confined to its sunken realm, um, erupted. So there was the Haitian earthquake in January. There was the Deepwater Horizon um, blowout deep under the sea, which obviously was a, a huge moment for um, for for America. There was Eyjafjallajökull, uh, the the Icelandic volcano, that uh, that stopped all. Uh, all flights across, you know, American European airspace. I'm sure you remember. And then in the summer of that year, this all happened basically in eight months. There was the the Chilean miners. Uh, that that incredible story of of survival against the odds when they were trapped under the Atacama Desert and they were brought out one by one in a a capsule co-designed by by NASA. <laughs> you know, they had come back from another space. So these these four events: earthquake, volcano, oil blowout, mining collapse. These were where the underworld was declaring itself to the surface. And I, I just kind of couldn't ignore that concatenation. Mm. Yeah, what did, what did all of this mean to you? Or how did you find a way to express it? I mean, I, I know that one aspect of this book has to do with, with climate change. And that that's certainly a, a rich theme that runs through the book. But, but tell us yeah. how you wanted to keep pulling at these threads. Well, I, I mean, I, I set myself these impossible tasks and never fulfil them. So, you know, Underland is a, is, even though it's a long book, it's five, you know, it's 500 pages nearly, but it, it was another 250 pages in draft and, and it could have been another, you know, another uh, four times that. It, it is essentially unfinishable, but that's because I'm dealing, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by where matter meets metaphor, we could say. So we've, you know, the underworld is not just where we gain our raw materials from, where, you know, natural disasters erupt from. It's this unbiddable, scarcely known um, sort of deep, deep realm that we walk on every day. We walk on the crust. Our feet are the things that keep us in contact with the earth. There are our, our, our palms, as it were, to the to the ground. But we can look up and see the light of a star that's traveled billions of years to uh, billions of miles to reach us, um, but we look down and we can't see past a, the grass blade, past the tarmac. So, you know, it's always there, but we 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 hardly think of it, hardly allow ourselves to think of it. Not only does it give us metal and and matter, it gives us dream and myth and story. I mean, the oldest stories are underworld stories. The Epic of Gilgamesh has this. 12th tablet this slightly strange 12th tablet it's a story of the journey to the underworld and it's 4,000 years old Enkidu has to go down to get a toy for Gilgamesh and he gets trapped down there and as I was finishing writing Underland you know the, the Enkidu story came true because I, I finished it in June 2018 when 
those that Thai football team, as, as everyone remembers, because underworld stories go around the world because they, they resonate in our psyches with such kind of vibrant power. That Thai football team went into the underworld and they got trapped. Go on about about some of the the metaphors that you explored, because there seems to be, again, so so many of them as we look through mythology. <laughs> um, what were some other ones that fascinated you? Yeah, I mean, they're everywhere, aren't they? I mean, we the, the, you can tell you're you're writing a, a kind of rich but problematic book when whenever you, whenever someone says, "What are you, you know? What are you writing about?" I say, "Oh, writing about the underworld." They're like, "Oh, what you know? What about this? What about that? What?" Are, yeah, <laughs> and um, so that that happened a lot. But I I I found a way to sort of sort it at least in my own mind, um, and I realized that you know in everything I'd read, all the stories I'd come across over years of reading and research. Um, these three themes or these three tasks of the underworld um, uh, recurred and they were to to shelter, to yield and to dispose. So if we take shelter, the idea of shelter so that the underworld is where we put our most precious things. You know, the, Ger- the German government has um, in Barberstollen mine has you know, basically all the all the microfiches of all state documents go down into the mine because they'll be safe against the the volatilities of the upper world up there in the second world war the national gallery here in london um, relocated all of its paintings in uh it, to a welsh slate mine so that they wouldn't be damaged in the in the bombs it's an incredible story and we place the dead we shelter the dead the loved ones right i mean that's the the oldest of our sheltering instincts with the underworld is is we put those we love in a place below the earth where they will be safe where we will know where to come and meet them again. Um, and we've been doing that since before we were Homo sapiens. The, the archeological evidence is pretty clear on that. Um, so that's sheltering and then yielding. Well, we've talked a little bit about that. You know, we, we, we take oil, we've, we've, we've drilled millions of kilometers of borehole for oil alone. Uh, we, 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 we take coal, we take all our raw materials. You know, we've been mining really as long as we've been making um, communities and and we also take metaphor we take language um and and we treat the underworld as a as, as an inexhaustible resource which of course it isn't um and every time we open up a new horizon to the underworld like deep, deep sea mining right now we you know we're there to plunder it um and then the the, the last of those um shelter yield and then dispose well you know we 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 flush our waste into the sewers. Cloaca Maxima, the great the great kind of pit of Rome, was where all waste was thrown and it disappeared into a hole. And we put our nuclear waste underground. You know, the stuff that scares us, we we bury because we don't want it back on the surface. <laughs> there were so many other great examples you mentioned in this book. I mean, in the way that, and this is profoundly sad, but that um, glaciers and snow are melting and they're revealing lots of things as well. You talk about, for example, climbers that are being rediscovered out of the ice and, yeah. and, and, and lots of other, really, I think, uh, permafrost, so many examples that are, that are very harmful. But this is all very, uh, very dark and discouraging things when you think about where the world is at this moment. Yeah, uh, yeah. These are I call these um these phenomena unburials, and they for me they fall into a category of, of the uncanny. Right? These are these are Anthropocene. These are very contemporary. We've sped up and disrupted Earth processes such that disclosures are happening from the underworld. Unburials that 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 should have stayed hidden for much longer. So, um, the 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 permafrost melt in Siberia in in twenty sixteen disclosed these uh, these reindeer corpses that had been buried a century earlier because they died of anthrax, but the anthrax hadn't died. It had just gone into the deep freeze, and so when 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 they were unburied by by these unholy temperatures, the anthrax was free to to roam again, and it did. And there was an anthrax outbreak, and and. Uh, People suffered. Um, caribou herds suffered by the by the hundreds of thousands. Um, uh, as you say, climbers, soldiers, those who who've died in war, in conflict, in um, in 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 trying to ascend mountains. The White War, the the, the kind of relatively little known um, wars of northern 
Europe in the uh, sorry of southern Europe in the Alps. Um, so bodies are starting to 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 return to us um, across across a century or more. And and a Yukon, in the Yukon, this wolf pup turned up again. Permafrost melt, fifty thousand years old, but its fur was there. It's the snarl of its lip was there. Uh, all all present uh, found by by miners because cold holds tenderly it preserves well but when it's gone it it kind of offers offers back the dead to us and we meet them across time and you know these these are not encounters we want to be having mm. it, the metaphor is just so rich as i sit with yeah. these images with you it, it's as if we're having to confront the ghosts of the past again Th these are not pleasant things right that we're talking about here and so what it's just what does this mean on this larger level and that we are forced to return to the past as a result of our presence and of our actions in the in the present right well i you know ideally it it's a kind of conscious strickening conscience strickening we might say um that these are you know these are bank if, they're, they're kind of banquo's ghosts right they're the, they're the return of the dead in macbeth who 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 come to prick the guilty conscience of the king we're the king really here we're the king species with the historical materialists who are the, who, who kind of know what we're doing and um and have self-awareness of, of that but um uh so though i take them as warnings i take them as signs and portents and omens um and one of the questions the book underland asks is is not mine but is is jonas salks this you know the great american um immunologist vaccinologist who who devised the the polio vaccine and then made sure that the polio vaccine patent that he had was established such that the vaccine would be available to anyone anywhere in the world. And Salk's great searching question, the question in the eyes of that wolf pup and those climbers and those soldiers and the eyes of Banquo is, um, are we being good ancestors? And it just takes a moment to settle in the mind that, that question, are we being good ancestors? And it, it took me a while to work out that to be a good ancestor is not to be a good parent. That's easy, you know, apart from at <laughs> meal times or whatever. But or to be a good grandparent, it, it's to be responsible for generations and billions of people that are yet unborn. Um, that that whose legacy, the, the legacies we are leaving, are their inheritance. Um, and it's hard, hard moral work. But it seems to me a a political question that, that that every polity needs to ask itself. It strikes me as interesting that I feel that the word ancestor has almost fallen out of vogue. It's not even it's not even one that we use anymore. And when we do come across it, I, I recall a show we did with with Native American elders, more in indigenous cultures and societies where there's a greater sense of reciprocity with the land and a greater knowledge of how one has yep. to live with it. And there I find the word resonates more, an ancestor, someone with knowledge and wisdom of a land and of what can be passed on to future generations. Well, that is beautifully put, and I, I can't improve on it. And, um, you know, again and again, we find that, as it were, let's say kind of post-Enlightenment, Western modernity, late capitalist modernity, whatever you want to call it, is is finding that the, the, the forms of culture and thought that it has so successfully sought to extirpate or extinguish are actually those which carry um, the lessons that are needed. Um, uh, we, uh, I... I was sort of mentored, I suppose, and inspired by a by a North American writer, probably be familiar to many of your listeners, Barry Lopez, who won the National Book Award in in the eighties with Arctic Dreams, and went on to put together this astonishing body of of work. He 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 was so far ahead of of so many people. Um, he's he died on on Christmas Day, twenty twenty, and uh and 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 is still missed but also still heard and he's a book collection of his essays his posthumous essays as it were posthumously published has just come out called embrace fearlessly the burning world and there's this there's this line i can't get out of my head he says um all has turned to water and we are searching for the boats we have forgotten to build uh ah uh, and i just i can feel the i just shivering at the we're, for, we're searching for the boats we've forgotten 
to build. And um, and the, the, the kinds of cultures and elders that you're talking of, they 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 know that they know how to build those boats. They've always known how to build those boats, but but in many ways they've they've been deprived of the means of doing so. And and the rest of us, I speak for myself at least here, we you know we've forgotten how to build those boats. Well, you're you're a father of you have an, a number of children. If I know <laughs> three, correct, three, is yeah. three children. I thought it was three. And yeah. it, you know what strikes me maybe about the difference of being a child <laughs> when when we were and when your children are is is this sense of of what a wild space is or an unknowable mm. space is. Mm. You know, when when we were young, and maybe lots of people listening, there were no Google Maps. Or right there, or or YouTube videos of every inch of the earth, or the sense that there were still mountains that were not climbed, or riverways right. that were not explored. Right. But it, it seems to me so different in that we've made the world so knowable. It's mm. so documented. It's so seen. I, and I I wonder what that does to imagination and to to a sense of what what this earth is or what these wild places are. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's a it's a wonderful question, one I think a lot about. Uh, yeah, we 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 you know the pre- premonition is freely available, right? You 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 want to climb a mountain, well, you can read a you know a hundred route descriptions before breakfast, and you can see a photo of every every turn in the path, every every crux in the climb. Um, my experience is invariably that landscape surprises us, that actually. The seven league boots we wear in our dreams as we, you know, finger walk our way across a map. It's oh, I'll climb this and then I'll run there and then, you know they, they're not they're not what mountains and 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 paths and forests are made of. They're made of hard rock and um you know spine effects and 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 biting insects and uh, and incredible encounters and surprises. So I while I while I do also share a kind of anxiety about the. The, the like the hyper cartography within which we we all exist i also i i also know that place that place will surprise us let's put it like that isn't that true that there's such a difference between seeing the photo of the rock and then hold, <laughs> and then holding it in our hands and, and, and feeling its temperature and yes in the grooves of its own uh, you know skin and it's it, nothing can really replace that at least yet can it Wow, yes, skin is such I mean rock is skin. It's the skin of the earth and when we lay a hand to it we're meeting life. Uh we're meeting life touch to touch, surface to surface, palm to palm. I I I I will never tire of of placing a hand on, you know, on on granite um and and feeling the pulse of the day's heat but also of deep time coming through me. It works the other way of course. Uh I took my nine-year-old up Scarfell Pike uh, in the Lake District, which is the highest mountain in England, and uh, just last week. And he it was a long, long-awaited uh, ambition for him. And I and we left in summer in the valleys, and by the time we'd uh, we'd got up to the tops, it was three degrees, and and visibility was 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 very little, and the wind was whipping, and he was crying. And uh, obviously, we kept him safe, and he sang all the way down. Um, so yeah, cried all the way up, sang all the way down, which I think is a fairly familiar mountain rhythm. To but and I said to him, you know, it's it's different up here. This is this is what mountains are made of. Um, we we'll get through this, and we you know we'll we'll learn we'll learn from it, both of us, and uh, and 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 so we did. And and I also said to him halfway, I was like, he's saying, I I I hate this. I'm never climbing another mountain. I said. You say that now, but you'll be amazed how quickly you forget. And I bet you in 24 hours, we'll be making plans. And, and so we were. So yeah, the necessary amnesia of, of hardship. Yes, ab- absolutely. I love that. And in just a moment, I, w- I want to begin talking about your musical project. But I, 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 there's just so many uh, rich themes that you've written about. And for example, just there, you've, you've written and talked a lot about just the power of, of walking and pathways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in, in another book, even in Landmarks, the, the forgotten words mm-hmm. that used to describe the land, these beautifully mm-hmm. specific words. And I, I just wonder if we can reflect on some of these themes a little <laughs> bit while I have you, because yeah. they, they've been so important in my reading and for so many others. Oh, yeah. Well, I, 
it, it, it comes back to this idea of reciprocality, which you, you, you launched us upon with your beautiful description of, of Stoner's skin, of Rocker's skin. And um, I, 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 I came to realise that, in a sense, we were, we were losing a language for landscape. And I say we here, I mean, I'm talking about um, myself and others like me, let's say. In, in, in Britain, there was a, a now notorious incident uh, where a, a very widely used junior dictionary used in in schools across uh, the country so sort of four to eight year olds uh dropped the words um acorn uh conquer catkin bluebell willow wren heron etc from the dictionary because they were felt to no longer be relevant to a to childhood and in their place they they added block graph uh, bulletin board mp <laughs> mp3 player i kid you not which of course is is now thoroughly extinct exactly right uh herons are still around but but mp3 players are in museums so um and and, and that became something of a kind of cause celebre for for thinking about the relationship between language and 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 nature and the imagination and i, I made these books the lost words and the lost spells with the artist jackie morris in response to that and so I began this bigger project of sort of salvage etymology, I suppose you could call it, gathering um, words which seemed to me much more kind of vibrant and reciprocal and dynamic in, from many of the languages and dialects and sub-dialects that we have in, in, in my island group. Um, I don't want to call it the British Isles, uh, it's much more and more complex than that. So from the Gaelic, um, the, 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 the Irish, uh, uh, which is also a, a Gaelic, but a, a different one to the Scottish Gaelic, uh, Welsh, you know, uh, Cornish, etc. Um, so about 30 languages and dialects, sub-dialects, I gathered about 4,000 words. Some of them, so I'll give you some examples. Um, Runach Moem is a Gaelic, a Scottish Gaelic, out Hebridean term. I just love it so much. It, so it, it, it means the shadows cast on moorland by clouds on a sunny, windy day. It does all of that in <laughs> in basic here. Well, yeah, four four syllables really, uh, and it translates literally as mackerel moor, runach moor, and and if you think of the sides of a mackerel, uh, I don't know if if it's a familiar fish there, but they have these beautiful, dappled, mottled, flanks, and so. So the metaphor works by taking the, the the vision of the landscape where where the clouds are casting their shadows, their dynamic shadows, they're moving, but they look like a mottling or a blotching. And then it comes back through the fish that are so crucial to the subsistence of those islands and then and then lifts up into the drama of metaphor. And so there's a whole kind of cultural Weltanschauung, like a worldview embedded of work, of love, of attention, embedded in that tiny tiny phrase and it's just brilliant and so i <laughs> gathered so you know so many e examples of that kind of word blinter which is the the kind of sparkling glitter that's given off by fine snow as it as it falls that kind of thing and i can't help but but think that these words were the product of 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 tribes or humans that that grew up or evolved with the landscapes in which they lived, that language and land were almost just so deeply intertwined. Um, I, a friend of mine reminded me of a great phrase, which is that we live at the level of our language. It's yeah. only at the words yeah. that we know that we can even see things or understand them. And that yeah. seems to be so true in the way you're, you're rediscovering these words. Yeah, well, we could think of it in, uh, as a sort of rewilding, to use a term that's very busy in this country ecologically in terms of land management and dis disputes over land management. We could, you know, it's that we, we make do with so many generics. So, you know, field, hill, um, <laughs> stream. Uh, there's a beautiful map of the of, of North America. I might send it through, see if you can find it to post with the program. But it 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 maps the changing terms in color. It maps the changing terms for creek across North America, and you see this incredible kind of rainbow of differences. And and it changes sort of regionally. It changes where weather changes. It's it's a it's a it's a beautiful way of seeing specificity but also diversity and that's why what i what i want is to sort of 
is to give us the wildflower meadow of language for, for talking about nature, for talking about landscape, rather than the golf course fairway. That's that's the generic, that's the monoculture, that's, you know, ryegrass or whatever, all or, or, turtles all the way down, <laughs> ryegrass all the way down. But we, my goodness, we, you know, we're language making, naming creatures. We've, we've, and children are so good at it, right? They, they don't, they, they don't use generics or they're perfectly happy to make up specifics. So precision is a form of lyricism and a form of poetry. It's also a form of pragmatism. And, and the, these words are gathered and the, the language I celebrate in the use of, of other writers and speakers is, is precise and lyrical and practical. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW, and my guest this hour is Robert McFarlane, writer, naturalist, and author of Underland, A Deep Time Journey. You can stay connected to Life Examined by finding us on Facebook. Go behind the scenes of the show, connect with other listeners, and tell us what you'd like to hear on the show. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay close. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Robert McFarlane talk about the use of language in nature and the rediscovery of forgotten words. He also mentioned a map of North America showing how the names for Creek change across the country. You can find that, by the way, at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. Let's now jump back into my conversation with Robert McFarlane and discuss an unexpected project that emerged out of the pandemic. Well, most recently, I, our listeners might also be surprised that you've you've jettisoned the world of of writing behind you, although not quite, <laughs> and have now uh, actually been more involved in, in a very wonderful musical project and in the creation of an album called "Lost in the Cedar Wood," um, which I want to talk about. Um, you worked very closely with with a musician, Johnny Flynn, but maybe you can welcome us to to this album and and, and tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, I I have very little musical musical ability myself. So, I uh, yeah, my my greatest achievement musically as a child was sitting on my brother's clarinet and snapping it in two. That's 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 pretty much the sum total of it. So it's slightly odd, much as you know, a mountaineer who lives in in Cambridgeshire, but I, I've become a a non musician who who works a very great deal with musicians and among them perhaps most closely with Johnny Johnny Flynn who who's an actor incredible actor your listeners may have seen him most recently in um in Emma in the big the big uh, film of Emma that came out about 18 months ago and um he's uh, he's all over your screens as well as uh, as the music stations he's just dazzlingly gifted so we 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 we've worked together been friends for a long time and we when lockdown came, we both, you know, we, we were stuck in the same place like so many people. And we just decided to throw out this lifeline to each other and, and begin a quiet collaboration. It began as a song and then it grew and it became an album. And the album had at its heart, at its root, the oldest story in in world literature, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which I've already mentioned. And we so we both kind of read this and it became the the nourishment that, that, that drove the writing of these these eleven songs uh, that that we then released as this album, Lost in the Cedarwood, and it's it's just kind of taken on its own wild life since then. The album came out; it, it, it's then become a a, 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 st- a stage show which we toured. Um, I I should say I I stayed in my jeans and grey jumpers. I didn't kind of no spangly trousers much as I kind of longed for my rock star uh, youth, but. Um, and then it's being turned into a, a you know, a full dramatization, full theater piece and um, uh, audio. And it is just sort of something about what we've all gone through, uh, the role of story and music in grappling with it and the return to this this most ancient of stories, the Epic of Gilgamesh. So 
Yes, and so maybe explain how how <laughs> that that epic story winds its way through the album. Were you looking for for fragments of it or a retelling of the story? How how did that work? Well, we both read it. Um, I'd read it already, Johnny. I just mentioned it to Johnny because I knew he's fascinated with orality and and literacy and the old and you know old old stories. And he he read it in that first week of the first lockdown here in in mid March, uh, twenty twenty, and and he was just absolutely gripped by it. It it is I think where there's a poet who described it as a as a fireball blazing through time. This story it 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 comes to us from four thousand years away, but it it strikes with the force of a revelation at the heart of it is uh, you know t- terrible governance toxic masculinity ecological devastation plagues unleashed unleashed upon the world the grappling with mortality it's it's uh, as as my some of my students here in cambridge would say it's highly relatable and, and it's un, and it's uncanny it's another of those unburials right it meets us with 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 contemporaneity and and shocks us so you know, every time we, we we finished a song, we were just avid to write the next one. It was it was absolutely clear what would happen. We we were just catalyzed by this by this myth. Well, let's take a listen here to the the first track on the album. This is called Ten Degrees of Strange." There's a black dog following hard on my train. So, Robert, t- tell us about that first track, Ten Degrees of Strange, we just heard a bit of. Um, w- what's happening there? A-, a lot of evocative language. Can you, can you, can you tell us about it? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, first of all, you just hear Johnny's unbelievable skills as a guitarist. You hear that amazing kind of sort of slide guitar g- going on there. And he-, he plays with an incredible resonator guitar from the 1940s, uh, which is just astonishing uh, sort of creature of an instrument. Um and it's well it's about it's about depression it's about grief and loss and you know the 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 dog that follows us all and um and we can't shake it off our tail i've gone you know gone 9 days sleepless seeking to keep this dog off my tail but we we can none of us can ever outrun it and um it 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 corresponds very loosely as you can hear that you know you don't need to know gilgamesh to listen to the album but there's a gilgamesh's dear friend enkidu dies uh, of 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 this plague and gilgamesh sets out into the wilderness wandering and he's he's trying to search for for immortality for himself he's trying to get away from the grief that he feels from the loss of Enkidu but he you know he can't do either and he's it's amazing it's about insomnia I mean we you know all of these things that we live ourselves daily he 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 has to he has to pass through a tunnel of spiders that lasts for seven seven days and nights and he mustn't fall asleep in it. He has to pass through a, a mountain pass guarded by scorpions and, and lion creatures. And you know, what 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 more vivid evocation of our own battles with with our demons could could be wanted than this ancient god king um out 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 trying to outpace his sadness. And, and it strikes me that, you know, over these last two years, I think so many of us have perhaps been forced to reckon with a little bit of the 10 degrees of strange or a little bit of the darkness uh, yeah. as as our lives have ground to a halt or as the world has felt more unknowable or uncertain than perhaps it has in many of our lifetimes. Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, no one has has gone untouched you know people have suffered grievously and calamitously and it's it's on degrees of course uh, you know of a spectrum of experiences but no one has gone untouched and one of the 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 weird and terrible paradoxes of it was was not being able to run right you couldn't leave you were stuck you were in well we you know shelter in place Um, and so the demons had time to, to gather and feast and um so this song really was written out of, you know, in part out of that. And we, it, it's the song which has a, a music video with it. It's up there on YouTube and it was done by an incredible American artist, clay, claymation animator called Lynn Tomlinson. And we wanted to work with Clay partly because what she does is like nothing visually I've ever seen before, but but also because 
the Epic of Gilgamesh was was is recorded on clay tablets, that those were the books of 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 ancient uh, of the ancient Babylonian and Akkadian civilizations. They were so pressed in cuneiform into wet tablets of wet clay and then baked, and that's how they've survived. Wow, interesting. Well, that was that was the first track of the album, and I, I was very touched by by the last track. It, it's oh. kind of this very profound bookend to the story, and and it's it's has a much kind of quieter and, and somber <laughs> feel. Um, this is called Ferryman. So let mm. let let's take a listen to that right now. Carry my memory on Out to the island On the horizon Following the path of the sun Following the path of the sun Well, Robert, that again, that's the, the final track. Um, some really beautiful and, and just the opening there, the idea mm. of, of being, you know, transported some, some aspect of us to, you know, to the horizon. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm really glad you like it, Jonathan. It's, um, it's probably the song I, that has my heart most. Um, there are personal reasons for that. I, uh, some very dear to me suffered a terrible accident early in lockdown and uh i wrote that you know when things look very bleak uh for for that person um and the, i wrote really the whole the lyrics in one sitting it was one of those some songs you kind of tinker over like a you know beloved car or motorbike a kind of year-long project and others just come in a rush and that one as soon as i had you know ferryman carry my memory on um out to the island on the horizon following the path of the sun I just knew there was there was a there was a song there and then Johnny you know we would correspond by whatsapp because we couldn't meet because we were in lockdown and so we a lot of it was done by voice and then I'd get a kind of voice memo back from Johnny and I just remember listening to that chorus the first time what he'd done with it and just well I just I, I cried it's I'm not crying at the kind of beauty of my own work it, it was what it, at all it's not that it was something bigger and what what Johnny had done with it um and it's it's really resonated with people it's been played at, at funerals here quite quite a lot now I've, a lot of people who've suffered loss and grief of their own have you know written written their stories to to, to talk to us about that track so it, it it has a correspondence in the um at the end of Gilgamesh where Gilgamesh is trying to visit the island of immortality that's uh where Utnapishti uh who's the the, the one survivor of the of the flood lives who who knows what immortality is and Gilgamesh thinks if only he can he can get out to the island on the horizon he'll live forever but he he can't of course mm. it sounds like this is a this is a book that and a song that I, I we're, we're forced to sit with this kind of great question this great unknowable of mm. an afterworld mm. or lack of or mm. what what we aspire to know of it but very kind of profound ancient questions yeah yeah it's so interesting you say that uh have you i i have you read gilgamesh jonathan i'm this is one of the embarrassing moments where i say no No, it's a book that's kind of haunted me around and sat on bookshelves but i i swear after this interview i'm going to go pick it up (laughs) yeah no it's no there's no embarrassment because it's it's little read oddly you know it doesn't it doesn't have the the cultural currency of the let's say the iliad or the odyssey and that's partly because it disappeared for thousands of years it was only rediscovered in 18 in the 1850s and then translated in the 1870s for the first time in thousands of years so it's actually it's like a young ancient story and it's but in the 150 years since then in fact it's 150 years exactly this year since its first translation um it's just traveled so so wide and so so hard and fast and met so many people and been retold in so many cultures and places but what what struck me about what you said is that you're exactly right intuitively this the epic does not tie itself up neatly in a in a red ribbon there are no take home carry out gift back 
gift bag morals in the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's an extremely unsatisfying, inconclusive ending, which seems to me exactly as it should be, because these are frayed ends. These are margins that we that we that we live on and drift towards. Well, finally, I for you as somebody who who has probably spent so many hours locked away in a study, writing your books and thinking and researching, and and to to work in the realm of music, you talked about just the the emotion that comes over you when when the sound comes back, when <laughs> when you know when the the melody comes to you. Yeah. Um, KCRW, the station here is one that is that is full of music, and I, I guess for you, what's been the power of working in that medium in a way that might have been uh, unexpected or wonderful for you? Oh well, first of all, it's such a joy to talk to you and to 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 reach your listeners and to be to be part of this station, which is you know so so musical and part of the world that I I would love to know better. So thank you all for for this for this time and. And then yeah, I it, it's I sometimes joke about it. It's like the the Johnny Flynn song machine. It's like I kind of I I I, I text off these lyrics, uh, and then and then about a day later, back comes this demo, um, uh, tick, sort of tickers out of, of 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 the machine, and it's I just those moments are so special to me. Hearing a song take form in air. I work with these seven musicians for the what's called the Spell Songs um, Ensemble, who who set poems that I that I wrote for these books The Lost Words and the Lost Spells Seku Kaita on the Cora and um, Julie Fowlis on the, the Gallic whistles and voice and I'm just and, and watching I think it is the purest form of magic to me. Writing is labour and trowel work and concentration and perspiration in locked rooms and you know no one would ever want to watch a writer write right <laughs> it's the most it's paint drying it's grass growing but musicians musicians are magicians weaving golden thread that they pluck from the air and when i watch it actually happening in the moment i there's 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 no kind of greater secular miracle to me well, my guest this hour has been the writer Robert McFarlane. He's the author of Underland, A Deep Time Journey, and the collaborator on a new album called Lost in a Cedar Wood with musician Johnny Flynn. Robert, we've uh, journeyed up the mountains, gone below ground, rediscovered some old words, and ended with some music. It's been a wonderful hour. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I've loved our conversation. Well, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And if you want to hear more of the music, discover Robert's writing, and catch up on old shows, make sure to join our Facebook group and continue the conversation. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Jonathan W. Bastion. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.